sniffs to a minimum. Okay. But, um, you know, it may not work or I may. I'll just attribute it to your cocaine habit. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be good. <laughs> hey, yeah, but there's no swearing in the podcast, but dad, I do coke. <laughs> Aren't you proud of me that I can admit that? From the San Fernando Valley, this is the McShroga Cast, a film podcast where we're sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always interesting. Here are the guys. My number six is The Babadook. Oh. This is an Australian horror film that could not be more mature and more thoughtful. These are the horror films that get me into the cinema because so many of these days rely on cheap scares, half-baked plots, campy characterization, if there's any characterization. Mm -hmm. And this movie is just the antithesis of all these things. It is so smart and so compelling because I think at its core, the story is enough to get by by itself. The horror elements here are almost incidental to what happens there's still even if they weren't there you could still watch this film easily um it's a it follows a single mother played by australian actress essie davis um who's still reeling over the violent death of her husband and she has to cope with now being a single mom and especially a mom to this son in this movie who's a seemingly innocent fear of a monster lurking in their house might not be so innocent after all uh, this kind of there are some themes here that really play to a strong subtext I think there are themes of how communities react to single mothers how they can kind of be ostracized sometimes uh, how again getting back to Gongrel how you knowing something about someone or how they, they act in a certain moment you can paint them with a much larger brush than is warranted and even fair um, so this movie kind of kicks off where there's something, like in all great horror films, there's a sense of unease already when the film starts. Even when we know nothing about what's going on, we feel the sense of dread. And I, I would put this film actually in the same class as recent horror movies like Let the Right One In and The Orphanage, ones that can faithfully speak for the, the genre as a whole. Um, they stay true to their own logic. They mine some really deep pathos out of their amazingly good characterization. And all of this being said they have a great appreciation for the consummate skill that comes with great horror efforts uh the, you know the best films are to strive off and work um psychologically you know they draw on these really deep emotional reservoirs and these primal fears while using their horror elements sometimes even in purely metaphorical capacities and this like is certainly true of the babadook where you have this storybook villain that appears when her son wants uh, her to read him a bedtime story. The book is called The Babadook, and that's where uh, The Babadook itself is actually an anagram for a bad book. <laughs> um, oh. Okay. Uh, the, uh, and The Babadook character himself, this is probably the creepiest book ever written, and I read they're actually selling this book online now as it actually appears in the movie for, Amazon. for $75, I wow. think. It's, I mean, you, you watch the movie. It is an amazing book, just in... It, in the writing, in the in the imagery. in the imagery, in the just the total creepiness factor. I, if I uh, was of a more sunny disposition financially, I would probably already have this book. But <laughs> the Babadook character is equal parts like film noir, 
uh, German Expressionism with some Edward Scissorhands kind of uh, thrown in there too. Um, her son, played by Noah Wiseman, his his reaction to this book kind of sets the whole movie spiraling down. Um, this uh, this character, the Babadook, is our two protagonists' fears kind of manifested in the flesh. He kind of represents all their psychological turmoil um, and everything they need to work through to become normal again. And a lot of horror films have a lot of trouble sticking the landing. And this film just gracefully avoids any of that, where a lot of times we get kind of the last scare scenario where they try and... There's the last boo moment before the credits roll. Just so cliche and contrived and just makes you want to just throw something at the screen. And or else, you know, everything will become too cheerful where they've conquered everything and it's time to move on and it's just a little too rosy of an ending. Or maybe a little bit of both where they have the where they're both on the porch looking out into the sunset and yet something happens behind them that they don't know about. And <laughs> right. so then that's like, oh, okay, well obviously we're setting it up for yeah. a sequel or something. Getting back too. to just how mature and thoughtful this movie is, it recognizes that while we can sometimes harness and even imprison our psychological you know our fears our anxieties we can never truly conquer them and that's where this movie i think uh succeeds in taking us off on something that we can continue to ponder with um like i said it's very thoughtful very mature and uh easily the best horror film of the year for me was that your number five number five number film. five film my number five film is kind of coming out of left field um an unexpected indie gem as i said the skeleton twins yes i have seen this yeah so um saw this in the in the theaters of course the great casting of bill Hader and Kristen wig um was kind of the big piece drawing me in and sure. they won a lot of awards screenwriting and for acting everything like that yeah branching out both of them. yeah and they i mean they nail it without any issues at all i felt like i feel like their dramatic chops were good enough to be able to to, to sell what the film was was trying to sell um their built-in chemistry is apparent and i think there's a reason why they were paired together they're both on saturday night live for a really long time even if you just see them interviewed they just play off each other so well they're very they're they're and 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 i think that that also within the film they are estranged i guess you can say in the beginning they haven't spoken to each other in a very long time and then they come together and they kind of rekindle Right. the relationship that they had and they both have grown so much in the in in, in the time since the they last spoke um, but there's always kind of something bubbling under the surface that, n- that neither of them are really keen to talk about you can kind of tell that from their performances and also from the, the things that they're saying right so when they actually do pay that off later on in the movie it totally works yeah but I think what's also great about uh, about putting comedic actors in dramatic roles, is that if you do have a comedic scene, you know that they're just going to nail that too. It doesn't really work the other way very often, does it? Having no. successful dramatic actors trying their hand at comedy? No, it I doesn't. Think more often it works in reverse. Yeah, I mean, you look at Bill Murray, you know, kind of the biggest person that can kind of do that. They can be funny. Just doing comedy is incredibly hard. Yeah. You know, and so I think that if you can pull that off, you, there's something to say for what you could do in a much more quote unquote serious situation. Yeah. And I think that it's one of the funniest scenes of the year. I think when they're singing that song, oh, it was just a riot. <laughs> yes. Because they, the director trusted them to be able to pull it's the, that it's, off. It's the scene that comes to mind whenever I think of the movie first. Yeah. It's it's the showstopper. Yeah. It's really great. Um, Hater in particular, I think it's it's one of my favorite performances of the year. Um, wow. completely surprising, but just very darkly funny. And this is actually a very dark film. Yeah. It's, it's a very, you can, 
it's a dark comedy. You know, yeah. it's 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 something that you it's things you shouldn't be laughing at, but you are anyway. Yeah. I mean, it deals with a lot. I of I almost struggle calling it a straight comedy. I feel like there's it's more of what people call it a dramedy yeah. nowadays. It has there's some equal doses of heartbreak in between the the stuff that can't uh, stop you from laughing. But I think he is he deals with so much, and even in the way that he walks around, he's carrying such a burden, a burden that is again revealed later on in the film. Um, the fact that he had an affair with a teacher when he was a student and it did a lot of splintering within the family and the different... I'm just realizing his character is very similar to Steve Carell of Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. (laughs) If you think about it. That's true. I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that he tries to kill himself at the beginning of the movie. Right. And it was over one of his colleagues, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that just came to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. um, You know what I really appreciate about this movie was just an examination of what it is to be a twin, yeah, you know, it's like you hear so many things about how they're so in tune with their other's feelings, and they can sometimes feel things that is happening to the other one even when they're not there. Mm-hmm. They kind of explore that a little bit here about just how that feeling of closeness that really can't be shared by even siblings, just normal siblings. Yeah. you know, just 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 having that 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 DNA connection at your basic level with someone else is is really interestingly explored here. I think you know, I think they really picked two really good actors to get that across from womb to tomb <laughs> yeah it's emotional cathartic it's got a great ending i think it's a real keeper and i think it's a, again definitely should be sought out by by people um, looking for something a little bit off the beaten hollywood path right um but something that can that that'll really uh mm-hmm. I, I don't think you'll be sorry if you if you watch it i won an epilogue to this talk of skeleton twins but there is not a character i felt more awful for this entire year than Luke Wilson in this movie. <laughs> he was. He definitely. I, yeah. He just gets shit on this whole yeah, movie. He really and does. he's such a nice guy, you know, and it's just, he just gets screwed over at every turn. Yeah. And the, he uh, ran into this, he, he sort of ran into this hurricane that he didn't know he was coming into. Oh my with, goodness. You know, with Kristen Wiig's character and with the family in general. I mean, it's just it's just a, a nightmare that he wasn't... I mean, he didn't know. He didn't know he was our, getting into that. Our last scene with Luke Wilson in this movie made me want to jump off a bridge. Like, yeah. I felt so bad for the guy. Not getting into spoiler territory, but you'll know when you, when you see it. Mm-hmm. Coming good, down the home stretch here. Good pick. Uh, my number four, you've already touched on it, it is Nightcrawler from director Dan Gilroy. And I think along with the Lego movie getting snubbed at the Oscars this year, there is no more glaring omission than the character of Lou Bloom for Mr. Jake Gyllenhaal. His insidious, creepy, and he's just a oh-so-modern monster. You know, he's like a Travis Bickle for the TMZ age. That's that, that's like the log line for Lou Bloom, if you ask me. Right. He's just this creeper who's looking for some purpose in life, and he finally finds it by weaseling his way into this like seedy world of you know, L.A. crime journalism. I mean, this movie, it's been called a nocturnal thriller, which I really like. It's almost like what you'd see if you found Michael Mann's movie Heat dead in a ditch, being <laughs> consumed by maggots and other bottom feeders. I mean, that's kind of what <laughs> ground this movie is operating in. Big it, words. It gets into the muck and stays there for this whole film. Um I, I, I love, too, our first scene with Lou Bloom, how he's kind of cutting apart this chain-link fence in the late hours of the night to sell his scrap and make a few pennies later on. Yeah. And he gets uh, caught in the act by this security guard, this, this rent-a-cop. And you can tell, like, 
he Lou Bloom knows this guy's behind him. He knows why he's there. And before he even makes eye contact with the guy, you see him practicing his smile. I don't know if you remember this part. I do. But he is kind of trying to find the way to contort his muscles into such an expression to where he can come across as non-threatening. Yeah. <laughs> he does not know how to smile. Uh, it, everything he does is playing an angle. You know, like every way he acts has a purpose. And I think that's something that continues through the rest of the movie. Um, he starts off with these really rudimentary efforts, getting a cheap camera. Uh, when he finally does find his calling, which is documenting all these horrible, horrific accidents that happen throughout the, the Los Angeles night. And this movie, I think, is just a... I guess what he really tries to find his calling, and he gets it, he starts to kind of fuzzy the line between observer and participant you know like he's he's almost at this point starts to create his own headlines while kind of putting himself in like the starring role of it you know he is starts to actually manipulate the accidents he is there to cover to his own benefit um and yeah because it's it's one thing if a person is in an accident, oh, but if they've been thrown a certain distance from the car, or if they look a certain way. There's this one scene where he actually yeah. he drags a body into a place that's more ideal to film. Yes. The lighting <laughs> is better. I mean, yes. it, 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 it is more what is beneficial to him, which is interesting because he also identifies his own his cell, himself based on how much money he's making. or you know, he, I, I kind of see him as a little bit superficial in a way. He is because he, he just identifies himself, oh, I have to have a job. I have to be working. I always have to be doing this and or doing something. I'm trying to find, like you said, his purpose. But it's yeah. all kind of tied into, well, I need to be making money. I need to get a better camera. I need to get a faster car. I need to be this, able to. This, this is certainly a perverse take on the American dream and, and yeah. the, just the, you know, the capitalism as a whole, as you touched on. But it's also the searing indictment of cutthroat local TV news platforms. Yeah, who knew? You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I guess we all had a feeling, but it's never been spelled out for us yeah. in quite this way. Uh, how just these these stations basically sell themselves out for the thing that will make headlines, you mm-hmm. know? And they, any soul that they Any journalistic have left, integrity. Oh, out the yeah, window completely. The window. And this is really emphasized with Rene Russo's character, Nina, um, who, yeah, like, I'm really thrilled to see her in something of substance again, because the only thing I can remember, what, the Thor movies, where you, you might have to struggle to even remember she's in them. Um, yeah, she's she's a, <laughs> as much of an ancillary part of those movies as, as, as any, it, any other piece. As it can get, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I just love the scene where he takes her out to dinner. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the scene. I do. Uh, yes. We, <laughs> Rene Russo comes into this. She's the producer that he's trying to sell stuff for. Um, he, she comes into this almost as like a favor to him. Like, I'm going to go to dinner with you, and you're going to pitch me what you want to pitch me, and I'll probably say no, and then we'll walk away and never talk to each other again. But what transpires is actually something quite different, where he just ensnares her in this cat-and-mouse scenario where by the time this conversation is over, she is completely and wholly dominated by him. He has asserted himself as to why she needs him, why he could easily go somewhere else, how it will save her station. He even, he even, you know, he cites her ratings and he cites yeah. her contract yes. and that you're going to need a new contract if your ratings are low. You're you're the lowest in the in the city, and this will help me raise you up. So you need me more than I need you. And into and, this yeah. into this unwritten contract, he even 
rights on the clause for sexual favors. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, it just seems so absurd, but when you look at who this character is he's talking to and what's so important to her, she, is, she she's done by the time it's over. She is powerless, and it's just a fascinating shift in uh, the power between the characters up until that moment. He may as well have gone for it, really. I mean, he, he'd already got, <laughs> he had already got, garnered so much else. He probably didn't yeah. even go into it without thinking it. He's like, well, I could probably get this, too, so yeah. let's just throw it in there. Yeah. That's on top of everything else. Right. I just, I just love how he goes from just, uh, you know, unethical, immoral documenter of this stuff to actually becoming a puppet master. It's such a brilliant arc for a character, and honestly, a true original. I mean, I can't really cite a film like this that I have ever seen in my life. Um, number four, a very strong number four, is going to Nightcrawler. My number four is uh, probably the most entertaining I had at the uh, most entertained I was at the movies mm. this year. One that I wanted to see immediately again as soon as it was over, and it's Guardians of the Galaxy. Ah. Um, it's the best Marvel movie. Oh, sorry. We're gonna get into some. Uh... Well, I, we could we could have an entire podcast, and we in could. fact, we probably will. We should have a Marvel podcast about Marvel, yeah. just about the Marvel universe and about this. What you know, the cinematic yeah. repercussions of their of their universe is. Yeah. Um, but I struggled with that. I because mm-hmm. I love Iron Man. Iron Man's great. Iron Man would be number two for me. Maybe then the Avengers would be number three. Mm-hmm. But this one, because of its originality. And I think that's what made Iron Man so good in the in the first place. Is you see it, and you know I wasn't so familiar with the comics. I, yeah. I had some passing knowledge of it, but I was sort of. I mean, this was my introduction to Iron Man, just in the same way this is my introduction. I had less knowledge of Guardians of the Galaxy than I had oh, with Iron Man going in. Everybody, any, everybody did. I mean, you know, other than the the total died in the wool Marvel comic book fanatics, no one had ever even heard of Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah, or even paid any mind. And I mean, you know, you first see, you first hear kind of that they're making this movie with a talking tree, a raccoon, a green yeah. woman, a strong guy, and, yeah. and a human looking dude. I mean, it's, you sort of think, well, how is this all going to kind of tie together? Mm. But I think it's testament to what James Gunn, the director, did mm. in balancing their personalities and making it feel completely fresh and original. Even though they do, they still do the annoying thing of trying to tie it in with the rest of the universe. That's one of the biggest flaws of all the Marvel movies. And I think I, I would be interested in actually just in seeing the films, what they would be like if they all weren't well, a part that, of this well, that's puzzle. That's why Iron Man is so great, is because it, you know, they set it doesn't up, have they that. set up the Avengers at the end of the movie, but it had not, it had no other universe to comply with at True. that point, which is why I think it stands alone as a just a complete story. And why it's still my favorite Marvel movie. But the style, I mean, the action, the humor, the characters, freshly original, well thought out. Stuff I want to watch again. You, you're building universes. You're, I mean, it's, 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 it's such an achievement mm-hmm. for me in just popcorn entertainment and yeah. also just in sheer enjoyment, yeah. really. Yeah, um, you know, and then having I've watched Parks and Recreation for years, and I know how funny and how great of an actor Chris Pratt can Un- be. Unlikely uh, action hero. Yeah, of and, the year. and I'm glad he's finally getting the recognition mm-hmm. and the praise and the roles that he has so richly deserved for uh-huh. a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much dichotomy between all the characters. You mm-hmm. know, they are all so different. They all come from different corners of the universe, all unified. You know, in this very strange. You know, a series of unfortunate events yeah. kind of brings them all together, all fighting for this common goal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, the the, the I, I say the fresh air and originality that Marvel needed. That's of course coming from my opinion, not from their box office receipts, because <laughs> people clearly don't care yeah. one way or the other. Although it is great to see that this, I believe, as of now, is the top grossing uh, domestic film of the year. It's so interesting about Marvel. I mean, they only have one product. You know, like as a studio, they make comic book movies, and it's kind of their greatest strength and their greatest weakness mm-hmm. all rolled into one. Because while they are incredibly popular they dominate the box office whenever they're out they still can only be marvel movies at the Mm -hmm. end of the day and which is why i'm kind of always just okay with most marvel movies you know they kind of they earn the price of the ticket for me but i never really take anything out of them you know which is i think why i i I thought this movie was okay i think it was one of their better movies Mm -hmm. you know actually you know with cap 2 it was a pretty good year for marvel overall um now i find cap 2 to just be in that kind of mesh of mm-hmm. the movies where I just – I don't really – I can't differentiate yeah. what happened in the first one with what happened in the second one, mm-hmm. the, what happened in the Thor movie. You know, it's just – it's just they all kind of meld together. They have great special effects, and you're totally right. They do earn the price of admission. Mm-hmm. But then you sort of leave, and you kind of go, well, who cares, you know? Yeah, I actually enjoyed Cap 2 more than Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and the reason is, I think it's just because I can identify with Steve Rogers a lot, a lot more than yeah. the kind of characters Guardians of the Galaxy is working with. It's very – Galaxy is very flamboyant. It's very eccentric. And by the end, it kind of just – maybe your feeling towards Cap 2 is my feeling for this movie. It just kind of became this – CGI soup where people are shooting each other with lasers and there's like mm-hmm. this space battle that I just don't care about, you know. But even then, I guess I just because I had connected with the film so early that But it does get you early. You're yeah. right. It does. I mean, it has this awesome retro soundtrack. Oh, the, oh, yeah, it's got the, soundtrack uh, kicks ass. the opening scene just that opening section. It's very funny. Yeah. I have to confess, I think Marvel has a serious villain problem mm. because other than Loki and probably and Loki is kind of half villain, half hero, depending on what movie yeah. he's in. Other than Loki and Obadiah Stane from Iron Man, I cannot recall the name of a single villain in any Marvel film. <laughs> and I think they really, really, if they want to win back people like me who are a little more skeptical of the movies they're putting out now, there has to be this memorable driving force coming from the other direction that really poses a threat, I think, because yeah. I, I never feel like any Marvel characters are actually in, in, danger. in danger, you know, and it really, it kind of just kills the stakes for me, and it's hard to really, when you look at it, it's just like, you know, an entertaining, fluff, popcorn, kind of funny movie. Yeah, it definitely works, but I, I feel like Marvel, I really hope when Ant-Man comes out that it bombs, <laughs> because yeah. it looks like it might, but it's based on the first trailer, or at least it'll do a good opening weekend, and that's it. Yeah. But, I want them to have a failure because I think they're way too comfortable right now. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that they really, like, I need to feel like people, people's decisions actually matter in the movies they're in. And I really am not a fan how characters who are dead keep coming back somehow. Dissension aside. <laughs> I'm really glad we don't agree on everything. That would be boring, of course. Guardians of the Galaxy, number four. <laughs> well, that was a fun discussion. Mm-hmm. My number three is Under the Skin from director Jonathan oh, Glazer. And again, another one I missed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I think you're in for a real treat. Uh, 
Maybe not. I've heard the I've heard the dissenting views, and they're not flattering. Yeah. <laughs> um, this I think is it has like a, two and a half stars on on Amazon or something like that. So you have a majority of people that it's dislike a pol- it. it's a polarizing movie. It's fifty fifty depending on who you ask. But it's the way the way I get out of it is, <laughs> and why it's so high on my list is, it's arresting and hypnotic imagery. This movie is told as almost like a, you know, a Terry Malick tone poem, but in this just extraordinary sci-fi. A Team Altopo? Team Altopo? <laughs> <laughs> Team Altopo Productions will, uh, will be Knight of Cups. That's how, that's how that will come out. <laughs> you heard it here first. But um, I think Johansson, uh, Scarlett Johansson is actually very, very well cast in this role. I mean, she, she, isn't, she isn't asked to do a lot, which might have you start laughing because she's not asked to do a lot in a lot of movies she's in <laughs> um, but they, she can only have she can only act with her expressions this is a very almost wordless movie where she's known as simply the female and she is her mission is basically she's this otherworldly visitor sent to kind of come to earth and find out what makes us tick as human beings just a complete dissection of who we are and the the way that she's to accomplish this is uh, to use what people find as attractive, you know. And Scarlett Johansson, obviously the the right one to turn for this. Like she basically uses her sexuality and her allure and her uh, her her mystery almost to lure people in um, to this little almost kind of den or domain she has where it kind of looks just like a house, but when you get in, it almost becomes like this portal to another dimension where she's, like, leading people in, and, you know, she disrobes, like, everyone's interested. They're like, oh, man, it's my lucky day, you know? And by the time it's over, like, they have... um, she, she this this den uh, almost ensnares their her victims like a spider web and literally like spits them out on the other side into I take it the people who sent her there some the you know the remains of these of these poor bastards who follow her kind of get funneled into I guess her homeland where they're to be dissected or something. Um, so she's good at her job. She's very good, very at, her good at her job. Doesn't need to say a lot to do it either. Um, it's not like ET where they just leave him behind. <laughs> not really. No, no, no. Um, but it really says a lot, I think, about about gender roles and like how we view women in today's age. It's kind of a, a really interesting dissection of that. And the the movie kind of takes a turn when one of her potential victims is someone who engenders a lot more sympathy than the previous victims that we've encountered. And she's forced to kind of reinterpret what humans might actually be about like there might be more to us than she had imagined and so she kind of she kind of goes rogue from her mission and just kind of sets out in this human skin she's basically wearing to kind of just see what life is all about and the master strokes in this movie are just the arresting imagery it's the best score of the year hands down by i think the composer's name is mika levy or levi i'm not quite sure instantly classic score that you'll be as soon as it hits you you're like my god why have i never heard that before um it's actually set in scotland with some thick and near and nearly uh incurable scottish accent you it's have, all just shite <laughs> you have to work through like i there were there were chunks of dialogue that i completely missed um <laughs> don't feel bad that you put on the captions Right. Close captioning. Right. It happens. This is a really handsome, nearly wordless production. It kind of burrows itself into you, as suggested by the title, and it really um, it makes you examine kind of your base instincts, especially as a man. This is really focused on 
Um, this is almost like, you know, <laughs> a different tale of this might be Monster, the Charlize Theron movie, but this is that in kind of a sci-fi setting. Um, it, this movie has a, uh, has a real story to, to paint about the human race, and it's kind of an uncomfortable story that's not easily digested, and let me just say, any sci-fi movie that can make a naked Scarlett Johansson unattractive and quite <laughs> disturbing has done a pretty good job. Wow. Again, one I'll have to check out. Um, my number three is uh, just a little film, kind of going against that one, um, Interstellar. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, the little... The, the, the little tiny movie that the, could. The little indie that could this year. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, another masterwork, I think, from a master director. Chris Nolan yes. has not really done us wrong, according to you and I, at least. <laughs> yeah, I've only desired to see following once but that's still a solid I've film seen it it's it's I've seen, it's it's been seen yeah um i think it's the most epic and visually stunning movie of the year yeah. i mean he he shoots for the moon so to speak you know it's about yeah. space but he shoots for the black hole yeah literally i mean it's it's the grandest scale you talk about the raid 2 having a grand scale i mean this knocks it on its ass really yeah um well this knocks any movie on its ass yeah one thing i think is really interesting just about nolan himself is he does such a good job hiding the meat of his stories from the press from trailers and granted i tried i mean it is i it was tough but i tried Mm -hmm. to avoid as much as i could i I saw the first trailer and that's it i didn't read hardly any about anything about it i you know because you know with that while it's not going to give too much away you know there's still going to be surprises he almost wraps them up and wants you to enjoy them. Him, the him and J.J. Abrams have a pretty good lock on making yeah. movies about as nebulous as possible until you see them. Right. And I mean, and again, this is completely him. There's something to be said about films that need to be seen in a theater. Yes. And need to be seen on the biggest screen possible. Yes. And you have to say, well, if you see this, you have to see it in IMAX. You have to see it on the biggest screen you can. Because you're not getting the same experience. You're not getting the full experience of what he wanted. And that's actually... I was, I've been hearing why it hasn't been getting more nominations because he actually refused to send out these stupid screeners mm-hmm. because he doesn't want people to enjoy... He does, He wants people to seek out his film and have to go see it properly. I didn't know he refused to send out screeners for In this. order to... either refused or he didn't... You know, just didn't care. Time. Yeah, he just... He doesn't really... It doesn't matter to him. He wants his film to be seen a certain way, a particular way. It's interesting. And that's that's noble, I think. Mm-hmm. Um you know there there are there are not a lot of films released these days that have that kind of need to see it in the theater qualification you know that's partly the that's partly hollywood's doing because they want to recycle them so quickly because there's so much to be made at home video and on demand and, and just not like that. many directors are allowed to work on this kind of the size True. canvas anymore yeah, there's maybe two or three i can think of right now that would have this luxury yeah and he but he sticks to it you know, I mean, he he's able to 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 stick to his guns about it. this needs to be seen. You know, he is a true auteur, right? You know, and that's enough slobbing of Nolan, I think. Um, you know, I wrote that he believes in the power of cinema, but you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> I, it's true, but it's kind of it, hokey. It, it, no, it is hokey, you but know. true, and that's kind of a way you could sum up yeah. a lot of parts of this movie, actually. Yeah, and we can actually we the, the fact that the two film nerds you hear right now can still be wowed by seeing something we yeah. saw this film together and yeah. it was just we both came out and we we're like oh, gog about this whole yeah. thing um you know the visuals tell all it's the best visual effects of the year based on actual science i can't mm. believe it they actually went through a, a black hole um and it's funny you talk about the score 
Because I think this score is actually the best. Have you heard the, the score in front of the skin? I haven't. But just well, from, from well, what I've heard. Well, let me just tell you, they're completely different. Okay. So it's not a fair comparison, but they are both excellent scores. Because I think, because Nolan, he actually challenges Zimmer to do something different. Nolan's doing something completely different. He's doing something where each world that you visit is completely different than the last yeah. and completely different from the next one you're going to go to. Yeah. And he challenges Hans Zimmer to do something with the score to complement the emotional center of the movie, and I think he completely nails it. And I think it's yeah. a perfect. It, it's a perfect marriage of a great filmmaker and great mm-hmm. uh, composer coming together with one yeah. film. Yeah, but this dovetails nicely because my number two film was Interstellar. Uh-huh. So, so why don't we just keep talking Let's about it? Let's take it. Yeah, this is what I initially wrote after we left the theater that night. On uh, I think I posted it to social media. I wrote and I quote. Interstellar will be met with a whole host of different reactions spanning the entire gamut of our film-going memories. Like all pieces of art, what you take into it will determine what you get out of it. What did I get out of it? Intellectually, Interstellar is endlessly stimulating, messy, and sometimes maddeningly nebulous. Emotionally, moving, and borderline profound. Calling Interstellar a movie does it a disservice. It is an experience. An experience I'll look back on and cherish for the rest of my life. In this film, all things are possible, and I still, I still feel that way. I mean, I left the movie theater kind of driving home on a cloud, you mm-hmm. know, like it, it was just everything I wanted it to be and more. You know, it's it's what I thought Christopher Nolan doing a space epic would do, you know. And let me just say, I have never seen another planet depicted quite the way this movie does it. Yeah, each one. The moment uh, we get to the first uh, planet that uh, the Cooper character, played by Matthew McConaughey, and the other a- uh, astronauts are are heading to, we kind of cut through the clouds. There's this little cloud layer that's over the planet, and that first shot of just the water, it's, it's, a, it's basically a water planet. I gasped. You mm. know, I had... It, it felt like visiting another planet, you know? And especially how they tie in the laws of gravity, gravity and, and physics. And physics, like yeah. this planet is pretty close to a black hole, and therefore, you know, thousand foot tidal waves are possible and regular. You know, and yeah, how they worked the the science into this is just amazing. They consulted Kip Thorne, the legendary astrophysicist out of Caltech, to you sign off on a lot of the science, and so much of it sticks so true. And I think the places where they don't, it's because the science is still open for debate at this mm-hmm. point, and they take liberties with it, as they should. Um, yeah, we haven't actually been inside of a black <laughs> hole yet. So. It's open for creative license, I yes. would say. But, um, you know, some people prefer their their Pandoras, like their Avatar planets in, in film, mm-hmm. where you have this almost mythic, fantastical uh, ecosystem with these crazy animals and these floating mountains and stuff. Yeah. I I love that, but this is the planet we're more likely to find. Yeah. And for that reason, it just blows that out of the water for me because it felt like something we could actually achieve someday. You yeah, know? there's the line where they're talking about how they see the mountains. They're talking about they're on this water planet, and they're like, oh, the mountains. And then they realize it's, it's not, not a mountain. mountain. It's a giant thousand-foot tidal wave. I mean, that's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and the way that they work the theory of relativity into a dramatic device mm-hmm. in this story. Who would have thought that was possible? You know, it's like, because this planet is so close to a black hole, 
that the amount of time that elapses on the planet is much different than the amount of time that elapses off the planet. And so they have their main spaceship uh, off the planet where they left one of their astronauts to kind of to kind of run the ship. And so they go down and they realize they calculate. I think it's like every hour counts for like seven years or mm-hmm. something of normal time. And so there's a you know so there's a screw up on the planet while they're on there, and it ends up taking them a ton more time than they imagine. And then they get back to the spaceship, and their guy has aged. What was it like thirty years? Yeah, or something like that. Because there's that there's that moment where he's at where they go. They're all there. They're happy to be alive. There's yeah, a, it's a narrow escape from death, and they yeah. go. Oh, how long have we been gone? And he and he looks at them and just goes, "Yeah, thirty years." Yeah. Like, oh God, yeah, yeah, there are yeah, some yes. real stakes going on in this movie. That was shocking. It, it is impossible to find greater stakes than presented in this movie because, you know, we haven't really even talked about the setup. There's this blight that happens where you get the feeling humanity has lost its ability to almost care for themselves, and it's probably some you know some comment about global warming being worked in there. And really all we can do is we have to go back to just crops. We have to try and plant enough food to sustain existence. And when we realize that that's kind of a losing effort, you know, there's this uh, NASA has kind of gone underground at this point because people have, you know, decided that the investment in a space program isn't quite worth the money as it used to be. And they even concoct like moon landing hoax hoax stories and, and work them into the the textbooks the curriculum of the children. yeah yeah at, at school and um getting back to the emotions like this movie I, it does not there were definitely times in this film where i did not know what was going on yeah <laughs> um it's specifically how he first gets to nasa the cooper character in the beginning i was like what just, how did that just happen you know and it, and some of the you know the the climax definitely leaves a lot of room to interpretation and what really what sticks to landing is the emotional payoffs that this movie has because you can kind of compartmentalize the stuff you don't get about the story and you can just really let the emotional current this movie is operating on bowl you over because for me it did like um, there are just scenes of just jaw-dropping sentimentality in this and just uh, you know a, a really deep-seated humanism you know that I, I fell in love with and it was almost emotionally exasperating for me you know when i walked out of the movie i it, it was a very quick three hours mind you. oh yeah i could not believe how fast that movie went by but i it, it was just it was just everything i hoped it would be you know it was yeah. a really really fantastic fantastic theatrical experience and i hats off to nolan totally agree um my number two is birdman uh, or the unexpected virtue of ignorance Yes. Um, and Clayton and I were talking a little bit beforehand, but the top two on my list, pretty interchangeable. This one kind of landed. I mean, it's still a, a wonderful, wonderful movie. I didn't want to. I said in lieu of pull of wanting to pull a Mike Baroga and not rank, <laughs> and just sort of put them as one and one A. I had to take a stand, so this one sits at number two. Mike, you can't see it, but we have a chalkboard here next to the table, and we are just making a check mark every time. Every time we denigrate you. <laughs> So where to begin? I mean, it's the you can kind of begin with the directing and the cinematography, the the seemingly seamless shots. I think there's only six or seven cuts the entire film. There's these twelve or thirteen minute vignettes that are woven together to create this tapestry that is this film. Um, it really captures the mood 
in New York City. I know you just went there for the first time right. recently. Yeah, it's right around Times Square, right there in a yeah, a, a, right there in the Broadway, Broadway right the Broadway area. and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. I think because the city itself plays as big of a character, I think, as some of the other characters in the movie, and yeah. it and just the franticness of it, it really masked or really did mask it. It it, it mirrored what the city is and the city is very much alive it's very much of just a moving constantly there's always people on the goddamn sidewalk everywhere you go (laughs) it's just constantly moving and moving and moving i mean michael keaton in a career defining role Mm. he plays riggin a washed up uh former big star of a comic book series wink wink trying to recapture glory uh (laughs) by adapting directing and starring in a broadway show um it does a great job towing the line between fantasy and reality, and I think that's a very sort of simplistic way to put it. Um, it's always keeping you on your toes, wondering what's real, what's not. They sprinkle bits and pieces of it here and there. There's times when it seems like he has telekinesis. There's times when he's flying. There's times when there's big explosions and action sequences happening within the same scene of him flying. And then there's parts of that he's on the ground, Michael Keaton, and he's acting in this play with everybody else. And there's you know, and they they intersperse them so well that you're kind of always sort of left going, okay, well, what is this and what is this and what is this? With some <laughs> of the characters, I think they they play good caric- caricatures of their personas. You know, Ed Norton is the dick who's obsessed with uh, <laughs> controlling so every good aspect. To see him in a movie again that has some yeah. meat to it, has some wasn't substance. It? He was able to sink his teeth really. He's into still, it. by and large, my favorite actor, and he's just kind of dropped off the radar, and yeah. he just kind of turns up and he's you know, Wes Anderson kind of movies where mm-hmm. it's a really small supporting role. And he's still, he is still just a, just a dino, just a captivating presence whenever he's on screen. And I just feel like he's disappeared. Maybe that's more of a state of where the industry's at right now. And mm-hmm. they don't really cater to his kind of, you know, thespian ways as maybe they used to. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he's just too much of a controlling dick who tries to, <laughs> you know, take over every project that he's trying because that's that's his character in this film to be fair to him he is awesome he is oh he is great (laughs) yeah i i completely agree with that um you know i mean michael keaton seemingly trying to reclaim his batman glory Mm -hmm. i think that it was a nice touch whether it was planned or not to have the birdman character who follows him throughout the film sound like the christian bale batman yeah, I kind of thought that was interesting, and, and, and again, maybe it just may have been a coincidence, but I thought that that was interesting. Sort of yeah. like this other, it it took this persona of this other of this character that he played and made it a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. kind of tied everything together. I thought yeah. that was really interesting. So, yeah, number two, Birdman. I, I'm glad you were kind of crazy about the movie because honestly, I was not. Okay. <laughs> um, and, I, and I've heard that yeah. it's a very much hit or miss. I think. Yeah, I, I'm in. I find myself in the really unusual position of thinking it's a technically brilliant film to where I acknowledge that but I still could not wait for it to end (laughs) I think it is a really it's a virtuoso film by almost any metric you can think of Um, the thing about him Batman that was just far too meta for me I think it's just it's just literally shoving that down your throat the whole movie how hey he used to be Batman but the, the gimmicky nature of the film I think it is, in one sense, it's very, it's very successful in evoking what it would probably be like behind the scenes at a, at a play. You mm-hmm. know how there's these tight corridors, people passing each other, and these little conversations happening in corridors and, and alcoves and stuff. And alcoves, 
Do you have this word, alcoves? Alcoves? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, alcove does show up. And, um, where it's, it's All that seems very true to life, but it did not make... It did not do so well cinematically for me. It, I kept finding myself... Disconnected? Right? Uh, no, all too aware of it. Oh. And I, it made kind of engaging with what was actually being said a little more of a chore than I would have liked because it's... I feel like, you know, it's constantly showing how clever it is. And whereas in a movie like Children of Men, where it uses kind of the same prolonged extended takes, obviously for a completely different effort, mm-hmm. but you didn't really know they were happening until they happened. And it was much more, it's much more seamless and organic. Whereas I think this whole movie is like one long Children of Men battle shot, you know, where yeah. it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's too much there. There's too much there, there. And it kind of becomes a problem for me. It can me. be a little inside baseball. I think that's, mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of what turns some people off from mm-hmm. it. I, I've heard that criticism. Yeah. Um, it didn't bother me that mm-hmm. much. I do like seeing, uh, seeing what goes into a production like this mm-hmm. and just the, the, the madcap that it is. Yeah. Um, you know, it didn't, it didn't bug me. The sm- you know, it, it the 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 perceived smugness or the the mm-hmm. taking itself too serious. You know, it 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 was fine by me. I was more in awe of just everybody's performance. It's the best mm-hmm. ensemble I think acting of the year. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, in terms of, mm-hmm. of 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 a group. I think it's mm-hmm. probably the strongest performances. Yeah. I mean, Naomi Watts, Jack, Zach Galifianakis, Emma Stone, all tremendous in this movie. And I think yeah. everybody works together. Everybody plays their part. Everybody does a a wonderful job. I think. Yeah, it, yeah, I think that smugness is something I did kind of lean more towards than you probably did. Mm-hmm. It was the whole kind of affair seemed, all of it seemed very shoved down your throat and very almost mean spirited at times. Whereas I think they also their take on criticism in the movie is kind of borderline caricature. The way they mm-hmm. approach the, I don't know if it's like the New York Times critic or yeah. or something in the bar and. You know, I'm she sure says, I'm going to rip this movie. I'm going to play to shreds. I'm sure what the Michael Keaton character says to her had actors and filmmakers everywhere just screaming for joy. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think that it does a real disservice to the benefits that criticism does offer, though people who are fair and honest with it. You know, True. Um, so so I think that what's what's actually interesting is I did enjoy it when it, when it was over, and it just didn't age well for me. You know, I kept didn't sit well, I kept stewing the, over it. You know, the the score really just unique and just yeah. just pounding you know with that really it was like that was like kind a, of the per- driving force throughout the whole thing it, it, it the really percussion kept it, score yeah. yeah and it was kind of the whole thing was kind of too too meta and too cute for me in the long run it, it just didn't sink in with me like it did with you well without any further ado let us reveal number one we may have uh aligned our sights this year ryan i'm not quite sure we'll, we'll find out because you want to uh, say it at the count of three. Uh, well, 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 I don't know. I don't know what your inclinations are, but Barnon, the best film of the year is Whiplash. <laughs> this is Jamie. This is Damien Chazelle's film, and oh, what an accurate title this is. Mm-hmm. This is Drumline meets Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is like I remember when I walked out of the movie, I actually thought about your review of The Social Network in 2010, where you said I walked out of this movie thinking. That was a movie, yeah. You know, like that is what it sounds really simple to say, mm-hmm. but that is a movie, and that's what a movie should do to you. You know, I mean, talk about getting lost in a film. You could have put me on a fucking milk carton. <laughs> you know, like I was nowhere to be found in this movie. I was just locked in, yeah, the whole time, the entire time. This is uh, 
just a pulsing, riveting knockout. And at its core, it's about, I think, the, you know, the pitfalls of pursuing perfection. Mm-hmm. You know, it's greatness. It, and, it features yeah. two truly insane and committed performances from Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons. The latter, I think, is clearly the front runner to win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar this year. It would um, be a crime if anybody else won but him. Right, yes. And basically, this movie is about a promising young drummer who enrolls at a succeed-or-die-trying <laughs> music academy whose dreams of being kind of this legendary jazz musician um, are mentored by this ruthless instructor played by Simmons. Um, the character's name is Terrence Fletcher, uh, who will stop at nothing to really realize the potential of his students. Um, and I think you can sum up Simmons' character like this. Uh, first off, you have to preface this by saying this is acting with a capital A. He is chewing scenery like you would not believe since the likes of Jack Nicholson. You know, this is a big performance. And I think you can sum up his character by this one little sentence he says. He says, you know what the two... He's he's giving an anecdote about... It's either... Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker. Mm -hmm. He's giving an anecdote about Charlie Parker where he basically says, the point of it is, do you know what the two most damaging words are in the English language? good job (laughs) right and i love it how this is a very nuanced performance which could have been so one note you know because there are times in this movie where i'm actually on his side you know he does make some decent points like this i mean that is true like if you do not push people sometimes you will never get the best out of them and if you just kind of say oh you know you did a good job there sport you know great great little great little drum line you were able to get Mm -hmm. there you might have talked them out of reaching their full potential in a sense. And then most of the movie, other than that, you want this guy to get murdered gangland style. (laughs) You know, this is, this is a, a, (laughs) a satanic character. Um, uh, I really love, well, not love it's, it's a pouring, but I love how he, he changes on a dime. You know, he, you never know what angle he's playing when he's talking to you. Uh, when the Miles uh, Teller character, Andrew, first meets him um, in the context of being picked to drum in his class, uh, he takes Andrew aside before the class starts, bring him out, brings him out into the hallway, has this nice little genuine conversation yeah. with him. He you kinda, think, okay, he's trying to get to know him a little bit. He kind of you know? gleans some really deep information about his past, some really personal information. and Just he, in the context of like... Hey, you know, like, what's your deal? I'm, I'm excited to yeah. have you here. Let's just have a little chat. You know, I'm your teacher, teacher-student he, relationship. He relates to him on a human level. Mm-hmm. And then what happens, right? The class starts. He has that same kind of thing going where he's like, hey, we got Charlie Parker over on the drums over there, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and then he starts to kind of get frustrated mm-hmm. <laughs> with each take of this uh, track, which I think is actually called Whiplash, what they're yeah. playing. And before you know it, he is like throwing his podium or was something. He throws something very heavy that could have killed him in his direction because he's not on the right tempo. And then what does he do? He uses this information he just got from him in the hallway against him to humiliating effect in front of all of his peers, just single-handedly destroying this kid <laughs> in front of class to the point of tears, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I think Miles Teller actually meets him Head on, I think these are two, both truly great performances, and I've been a fan of Teller ever since I saw him in uh, Rabbit Hole from a few years back. I think that was one of his first big movies. Um, the uh, 
movie with uh, with Aaron Eckhart and Nicole Kidman about grief and loss and um, he was decent in the spectacular now kind of as you know his, yeah. his, he got by kind of on his charm and um, but this is where he kind of loses all of that I mean there's not any charm to this character there's really just ruthless drive I mean he's kind of nice it's enough. funny you're talking about Miles Teller and <laughs> yeah. not about J.K. Simmons because you're right they yeah. do they do have that intersection they intersect that, yeah yeah and um, <laughs> and uh, I really love how Andrew is a nice enough kid to where he can still function in social situations. But throughout the course of the movie, that begins to uh, kind of deconstruct layer by layer. Because there's, uh, for example, there's a scene where he takes this girl out to to dinner, who he met at the movie theater, and they're talking. They're kind of having a nice, you know, get to know you conversation. It's their first real date. And he kind of, he asked the question, you know, what, what do you want to do with your life? And her basic response is, uh, you know, I don't really know. I'm kind of feeling things out. I'm trying a lot of different things. You know, she's probably like a liberal arts kind of <laughs> major or something, just wearing a lot of different hats. Crazy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the two kids who went to the most liberal college on the West Coast. <laughs> um, um and that's kind of the point when the conversation turns because you cannot you see you can see on Andrew's face that he cannot fathom how this girl could not have direction in life because he has nothing but direction and drive mm-hmm. and honestly that kind of simplifies his life because if what if anything he wants to do whatever he wants to do if it doesn't fit into this goal of being the greatest drummer alive he can just he can discard it, I think, and and justify it, and does, and, actually. and, and does, yeah. and um, it pushes him away from his parents. It pushes him away from this girl. It kills their blossoming romance. You mm-hmm. know, it kills him socially. Even when he's not playing the drums, you can kind of get the sense like the music is following him. Yeah. Um, the editing of the film by a guy named Tom Cross is truly, I think, a heroic effort because a lot of the times the music, or, or the the movie, I think, is almost like cut to the pace of a jazz piece yeah or something um even in that conversation scene i was just talking about it's kind of shot in the standard shot reverse shot kind of format and then as soon as he asked that leading question like oh so you know what do you want to do with your life and he get, doesn't get the answer he wants it's the the tempo of the editing picks up to the point where it's kind of heightening the intensity of the scene and letting you know that like this is a serious issue between these two people yeah. that will probably not get resolved. Um, you have to talk about the third act without giving too much away because it is the thing that really vaults this movie into greatness, I mm-hmm. think. Um, Completely agree. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost a mini-movie in and of itself. And there's a twist that kind of sets up this scene that I was amazed I did not see coming. Right. I could not believe... <laughs> We're pretty seasoned, and, they, bo- and, I, I, and I'm with you. I didn't see it coming either. I could not believe they pulled the wool over our eyes this way, because it makes total sense. It makes perfect sense. As soon as it happens, and I'll say, to sum it up, the reason why I love this film so much is that somehow the director pulled off an ending that is both uplifting and disturbing <laughs> because I can see people kind of walking out of it with like, oh, that was so inspiring kind of thing. Yeah, did you when, see what happened when, in the other yeah, hour and 40? <laughs> because it's such a it's such a great moment for, for Andrew, mm-hmm. uh, the Miles Teller character, but at the same time, he's kind of fallen back into this pit that you thought he'd liberated himself from. Right. 
and you get the feeling like that these two are on the most destructive path possible yeah. you know and it is my number one film of the year because it was a movie with a capital m yeah well i have three words that describe my number one film of the year not my tempo <laughs> And you will never be more afraid than thinking that he will say that to you. <laughs> thinking that J.K. Simmons will just show up at one point in your life and say to you for doing you doing the dishes, and he'll just walk in and say, "That's nah, not quite my tempo, but go ahead." When he says "not my tempo," he is a snake coiled to strike. Yeah, because because he he, he he first kind of goes, you know, it's okay because they even take back the tempo. They say, "All right, we'll 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 do it a little bit slower, just yeah. so Andrew can kind of get it a little bit." Yeah. Not 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 quite my tempo, right. but okay. So my number one film of the year is Whiplash as well. Yes, as if you hadn't if you hadn't done it's actually we were talking about horror movies earlier. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a thriller horror movie. <laughs> it is a horror movie man. without it's not scary, which is perfect yeah. for me. I love that. It's That's not scary, great. but it is horrifying. Yeah. It's it's I mean it's everything Clayton mentioned. It's exhilarating. It's a wild ride. I have my own thoughts on it. That's why I was trying to let you have your <laughs> I could tell your time. I was trying so hard. Um, I said it's it's what the late Roger Ebert uh, would have called a bruised forearm movie, which is what he <laughs> coined uh, in his review of Speed, uh-huh. because you're constantly clutching the person you're seeing it with. Right. <laughs> but I would go so far as to call it a theater armrest shaper, because the tension of the battle of wills between them. Yeah. You're just gripping that armrest so much that yeah. it's a different shape when you're done with it. Cause you're yeah. just, you just kind of go, I mean, it's the, the end of the film. It's kind of the first time you go, <gasps> okay, <laughs> what do we just see here? Yeah. Um, it, and it does deal a lot with greatness. What it does, what it, uh, what it really does take to achieve it. Yeah. And what others will try to do to bring it out of you. Mm, I mean, yeah. That's, that's kind of the simplest way you can really put it. I think. Yeah. Um, Simmons clearly has a presence uh, before he makes his first grand entrance. Yes, and I and I and I don't I I don't count the very beginning, just like I don't count the prologue from The Dark Knight as the first appearance of the Joker. Yeah. Like, yes, he's in it, but I don't consider it until later on. It's not his, you know, roll out the red carpet. No, moment. and 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 that's the scene that I'm talking about. You know, he's a guy who's not to be trifled with. All the students come in and they're sort of filing in at different points. This is Andrew's first day with like the big band. Yeah. Um, they're all getting their instruments ready. They're all, you know, kind of laughing, joking around with each other. Um, two seconds before 9 a.m., they fall deadly silent, awaiting his entrance. He comes in right at 9 o'clock sharp. They make a, a point of, of doing that. Yeah. And before you can blink, his conductor right arm is up and they begin playing. And it's just like, this is a guy that you just, you, this is a no BS guy. Yeah. He is just, he, he, he embodies just what it means to be great. Really? Well, doesn't, isn't, isn't their first meeting when he tells them to get there at like 6am or something? Well, the, 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 well, yeah, the first meeting the is first in the time. very beginning. Yeah. But then he also comes in, he says, yeah, be at my, be there at 6am for really no reason. For at no all. reason. And he just ends up going to sleep there for basically like three yeah. hours. Well, he oversleeps by a little bit and there's yeah. a great scene of him rushing to the, to yeah. there to get there on yeah. time. And then he's kind of going, what he's looking at the schedule. It's not till nine o'clock and he waits for three hours essentially mm. before they show up. But I yeah. thought it was really interesting. Just that the, that he commands such a presence with everybody yeah. And, you know, right then and there, 10 minutes later, or not even maybe less than that, five minutes later, he's already kicked somebody out of the band. He's already, <laughs> he's already let somebody go. Yeah. So not only is he making everybody 
show up, you know, nine o'clock Sharpie demands their respect. He comes in wearing all black like he's Darth Vader. Yeah. But he is exercising and, and executing his vision of this band by just saying, hey, yeah. get out of here. Sorry. Yeah. He is sort of, a, he's a throwback to an older time because you can make the argument now that this sort of thing isn't really done anymore. I mean, this is a, a this is a, uh, a teaching style that I feel like is, is going away more and more. You yeah, know, in yeah. Like coaching and in everything like that. No, I mean, that, that's how I res- I don't. Res- I wouldn't respond to that. I would be. I would be. Yeah. scared. I'd be the one who wanted want to quit. Yeah, you know, probably ninety nine kids out of hundred would be that way. Yeah, but the school and this group, this band, they take the one percent of the one percent, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I I I said it was seemingly channeling these old time college football coaches you know bear bryant woody hayes he's like really gritty kind of guys trying to get them you know we're gonna make men out of you and everything like that but i think his film comparison it might be better off being arlie ermy's gunnery sergeant hartman in full metal jacket <laughs> right. the yeah. greatness factor in that yeah and just that he will just send you out of your skull really yeah <laughs> um yeah i mean and i mean miles teller it, it we had mentioned already absolute delight you know he, he who would have known drumming could be such a bloodbath i know how much blood is spilt in this movie oh, in the pursuit of perfection crazy. actually this movie got the vote of confidence from the only other drummer i know which is kyle hey. different kyle so he, mm-hmm. he said hey awesome yeah. drumming on that one yeah you know where miles and where miles teller and jk simmons their characters really intersect i think is is kind of uh at least with the teller character it's when he's having that dinner with his family. It's kind of the only scene we right. get, we get of them. Yeah, where, with his extended family. Yeah, yeah with, with mm-hmm. his immediate and extended family, they're kind of having like a Thanksgiving Thanksgiving esque kind of dinner with each other, and you get the sense that he's kind of the outcast of the family. The rest of the people are sports stars, mm-hmm. and he's kind of this guy that's the artsy one who's going after the the musical dream. Then you yeah. know something that his family can't probably can't even relate to. You know and. Uh, his uh, his dad starts talking about you know you know jazz you know like the Lennon McCartney like those that, that's what you should be that's music <laughs> that's, yeah, that's yeah. real music you know and I happen to I happen to agree that that is real music but <laughs> I also can see the beauty of jazz though yeah, it's like an it, it. improvisational piece and how it's uh, you got everybody has to be working to perfection to to really sell the piece you know and so it has a ton of merit that in that respect and. I love it how Andrew sums up his philosophy kind of music where he's like, or just in life in general, where he says, like, I would rather die at 30, 32 or 36 and have people talk about me for 50 years than live to the ripe old age of 90 and just be forgotten about. Yeah. You know, like he, he's kind of one of these shooting star kind it's of guys. To burn out or fade away. Yeah. He would rather, he would rather die than yeah. become some, something unmemorable because we're still talking about Charlie Parker. You're still yeah. talking about all these other great drummers mm-hmm. and Charlie Parker played the saxophone actually. And then, but, uh-huh. um, but yeah, I mean, it's, the, I think the real reason this film vaults above my number two is, is that ending. Mm-hmm. I might go so far as to say it has one of the greatest last shots ever yeah. in, the, in, in the history of yeah. movies that I've seen. Yeah. Because that's what I keep coming back to. Yeah. And I listen to the music, and and it's because it, a film can start slow. Yeah. But if you wow me in the end, I'm going to have a more positive view of it. Yeah. You're gonna. It, it's going to give you something to remember by. I. It actually is probably more. It, it's it, it's better for me than if you're consistent all the way through. Yeah. If you are okay in the ending, but you really nail it, 
in the end, mm-hmm. and that's what Whiplash does. Yeah. It, it, that entire last third act with that twist. I mean, even going back so far as him basically showing up to a gig after he's gotten in a car accident yeah. on the way to that gig <laughs> yeah, yeah, and still trying to play because he wants so much to please J.K. Simmons' character. Yeah, Fletcher. maybe he shows up like Sally from The Night Before Christmas yeah. where like, you feel like his body parts are just falling off yeah. left and right. Yeah. He's just a, a bloody pulp of a human being. But that's the drive, you know, that's the cost of perfection. Like, he would rather die while, while doing the drums than fail to make it to the gig. Yep. I mean, it stuck with me for three plus months, two separate viewings. Mm-hmm. It's with... You saw it on the big screen. I did. Perfect. I did yes. see it on the big screen. Gotta see it on the big screen. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, best film of 2014. Well, I mean, come to I feel like it's since like... Since 2009, where we had Bastards at top, yeah, the top of the list. Yeah, that's true. And I guess, yeah. And I guess with, uh, mm. now I guess with The Dark Knight as number one from 2008. In, in, in hindsight. Well, yeah, in hindsight, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, that, well, well, that's um, interesting. That's really cool. I, I think that's, because, I mean, we both see so many movies, and with, yeah. I mean, that, that to be in line with such a film as, I mean, Inglourious <laughs> Bastards was a huge movie. Yeah. But this one was a little bit smaller. This was, uh, in, in a just world, this will win Best Picture, but since it yeah. will not <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so, um, do you have any honorable mentions? Yeah, I mean, I won't spend year? too much time on them. They, we did mention a couple of them. Um, the Raid 2 we mentioned, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I actually kind of went on an indie kick this year. I really enjoyed the film Obvious Child uh, with Jenny Slate. You mentioned that to me. I didn't yeah. get a chance to get around to it, though. I really did enjoy that one. A nice little um, comedy about abortion. So <laughs> there you go. Um, 22 Jump Street, I thought was the funniest movie of the year. I didn't fully. see that one. Live, Die, Repeat was actually, I think... Uh, Ryan, it's called All You Need Is Kill. Okay. Right, okay, yeah. Or Sorry. depending on when you saw it during the year, it could be called Edge, Edge of Tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. <laughs> um, the Lego Movie, uh, yes. Chef... They came together, which was a little um, a spoof film from David Wayne, starring uh, uh, Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd. Mm-hmm. That was a send up of romantic comedies. Right. That uh, actually, I did see that one twice as well. That was uh-huh. that was that one was uh, uh, really 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 funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. So I had a few from the summer in there. It was actually a decent summer. I feel like for quality, mm-hmm. of course, with Guardians for me, but then. A bunch of other ones that kind of just missed the list. Yeah, some overlap there. I really enjoyed Chef. I uh, I really enjoyed Snowpiercer. I thought that was fun. Okay. Uh, Tom Hardy and Locke mm. I thought was really good. Mm-hmm. That was about as minimalist as you can get. Yeah. Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal was kind of interesting. Okay. One of a few one. doppelganger movies to come out this year. Yeah. Uh, Blue Ruin, a nice little indie movie about... How you would go about getting re- taking revenge if you had no idea what you were doing? Let's see what else. Um, what's your list here? I guess I, I guess I'll leave it at that. I, I thought John Wick was pretty fun. Did um, enjoy that a lot. Yeah, yeah. An, another kind of non-video game property, kind of pulling off the good video game mm-hmm. movie feel to it. Yeah, uh, I had one of the best action scenes of the year with the in the house. <laughs> yes, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, uh, Imitation Game I really liked, as we already said. Mm-hmm. Um, we are the best. This uh, Swedish movie about these uh, these thirteen year old uh, kind of disaffected youths in Scotland who decide to form a punk band, even though they cannot play any musical instrument to save their lives. So, so let me tell you, Ryan. Yeah. Now, now that we've recognized the great films, okay, is it time to once again unrecognize <laughs> a film that was perhaps not so great? I think so, and it's funny because I think we're also going to have the same. I know there was the, the I know there's one specifically that we're both thinking of, um, because it would be number one 
for me and probably number one for you. Well, it's... In the derecognition category, the worst film of the year... The Mount Rushmore of bad movies of 2014 <laughs> is going to have a bust of Harry and Lloyd. Oh, no. It's so sad. Why did you make this movie? You know what? See, the even sadder thing is why I still saw it even after you told me not to see I it. I know. I mean, I spent sixteen dollars. Oh see my this God, Clayton! No, at the ArcLight. No. Oh. And the reason I saw it, I think, was just out of some love for the characters and all the laughs they've given me. I thought mm-hmm. maybe there was something that I could mine out of it that would have made the ticket worth it. No, no. It is some of the most lazy, uninspired, mean-spirited, actually, which surprised me. Mm-hmm. Misogynistic. <laughs> racist at times anti-funny yeah it was it it was perfectly in content to just take anything funny and beat it till it was dead i mean everything that worked in the first movie falls so flat here it's so it's so it's it's so it has its sights set on hearkening back to the first movie so many times that it just kills any chance of being its own movie you know it just it lives on the on the fumes of the first film and even if it doesn't completely explicitly reference the first movie it's still adapting something that happened in that first movie into something less funny here for instance you know you had the most annoying sound of the world yeah. in the first movie and in this repurposed mo- <laughs> as another sound yeah it repurposed as maybe Lloyd pressing a doorbell a hundred times in a oh, row. yeah, okay. That one, too. And it just, it took everything that was funny about the first movie and just murdered it. Yeah. And I thought maybe, was there a case maybe I had just outgrown the characters, maybe? So I kind of went back and watched the first movie again after mm-hmm. the sequel, and no. No. The first movie is brilliant. It is v- very possible to make a smart, dumb comedy, and they killed it in that one. And you just go, why not, why not just re-release... The movie yeah. Why not just again. It's the a twentieth anniversary, so just yeah. re-release it and just and you can bring in an entire. You can bring in the same people you were trying to bring in. Mm-hmm. It's it's a cash grab. Yeah, and Dumb and Dumber Two is the movie we're talking about. In case you couldn't figure that out already, <laughs> I, I, I I I can't say the title without gagging. So I think that's why we went that far. Well, I mean, some some of my other ones, um, Transformers Four. You actually saw it? Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. And it, it becomes a morbid curiosity. How bad can it get? Yeah. And we didn't think it could get that much worse after the third one. I think we just found a Transformer. Yeah, because you think maybe like, all right, Marky Mark, he's, he's solid. We like him. And, but he can't no. be solid. He really needs a good movie to yeah, be solid. <laughs> um, but, I mean, even like our, one of our favorite comedians, T.J. Miller, is in it. And he dies a third of the way in. <laughs> To this two hour and 50 minute runtime. I think it was just about as long as Boyhood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but probably felt like every Hobbit movie stitched together. Yeah. And the main thing is that it, did, it doesn't need to be this long, but there's a whole third act and the whole last hour takes place in China with Chinese product placement. Product placement that we don't understand. I heard as, about this. You know, as US viewers. But they're trying so hard to sell the film overseas. Well, at least they could have did what Iron Man 3 did and just give a different edit for yeah. American audiences and just include the Chinese portion and the Chinese edit. But no, they're drinking water with Chinese symbols on it and there are shots of you know people holding Chinese products. I mean, it's, it's, it's the most shameless thing. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to... Mind you, just make it in Chinese if that's, if that's what you're going to do. Yeah, as a lifelong fan of the original Transformers property, I am done. 
Yeah. After three, I have I have thrown in the towel. I've actually seen more Transformers films than you have. I never thought well, I'd say that. Actually. Have you ever seen the animated film? No. Then we're tied. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, the Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies, just because it was... I, actually, Ryan, that's the battle to make us care. <laughs> it was a... It didn't, it didn't work. They lost. No, it was it was a VFX reel masquerading as God, a movie. God, it's, it's, it's a video game cutscene for three hours, mm-hmm. and it just it doesn't need to be that long. The films did not need to be that long. Um, a Million Ways to Die in the West. Didn't bother. Yeah, I like Ted. I, feel like oh, maybe, I love Ted. I feel like yeah. maybe... Did that make your list? It made it the number 10 movie yeah. of that year. And I and I so we think maybe you know we'll ch- you know check it out and everything like that. It was not nearly the same. Mm-hmm. He Seth MacFarlane can be funny, but he can't be given as much control <laughs> or surround himself with as many yes people as he did. Right. Um, Exodus, Gods and Kings, just because it's sort of on the same line as The Hobbit. Like, yeah, who, just... who cares? I don't remember a thing about it, and I and I I mean even after I saw it. And last but not least, uh, the great. Colin Farrell property, Winner's Tale. Oh yes, that was that came out almost a year ago. Yes, and I it, February it looked, that looked terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. They actually skewered it on the podcast. How did this get made? Which is one of our favorites, my wife and I. So we um, decided to go see it because it there was even an article on I think AV Club just about how bad it actually is. <laughs> and when other mainstream media places are picking it up and telling you to go see it because mm-hmm. it's so terrible, it yeah. was definitely well worth it. We were the only ones I feel like they were kind of laughing at it. I sort of felt bad <laughs> for the people, the other people that yeah. were around us yeah. that didn't know what was going on and that yeah. didn't know that this was supposed to be really ridiculous. But um, but yeah, so I mean, those are some of the worst. Uh, I'm glad we got to see some of the best. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I got... To, I, the rest of the movies that missed the mark for me are more disappointments, I think. Dumb and Dumber 2 is the only movie I flat out hated this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't as enamored with American Sniper as a lot of people were. Okay. Um, yeah, I wasn't either. Yeah, I kind of, I thought The Hurt Locker explored these same kind of themes in a much more sophisticated and intelligent mm-hmm. way way back in 2009. Yeah. And just the, the uneven pace of the movie just kind of threw me off. And it, it, it just, it, I'm, I'm, I am amazed at the love it's getting right now. I just don't think it's that good. And uh, I know I, you risk being un- labeled as unpatriotic whenever you make a comment right. like that. But let me just say that, you know, great stories don't always make great films. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those cases. We support the troops. Yeah. Uh, Noah, I wasn't crazy about. <laughs> Even though I will say I am thrilled that this movie exists. Yep. Even though I do not like it, really. I think it is a colossal misfire. But I am so happy that a $120 million art film exists and it's called Noah. Um, what else? Uh, I wasn't too enthralled with Maleficent. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I didn't really go in with that high act of expectations. True, true. Uh, the Homesman with Tommy Lee Jones. And oh, Hillary I thought that was supposed to be good. Actually, it, it's just weird. I yeah. mean, it's it's interesting, I guess, but it's just it's just strange. <laughs> okay, and it's kind of I, I I still don't know what to comment. And I guess that's where I'll leave it. I mean, I definitely saw a lot more films I admired or loved this year than mm-hmm. movies I did not. Well, that's good. I guess since we don't do this professionally, the fact that you can minimize the number of disappointments or terribles mm-hmm. uh, is probably is, is commendable. So I commend right. you for it. I also commend you for another great year. <laughs> we made it. I guess this is the uh, McShank podcast reunion. From here on out, I guess, until further notice. So yeah. we're moving. We're, we're until moving. we're able to snare Baroga in with a captivating topic. Yeah. <laughs> but until then, we hope you enjoyed listening to us babble on about our favorite thing. 
And uh, we hope you guys will uh, leave us some comments or anything like that. And uh, we'll that find was a way the to get in touch. lovely baritone of Ryan McCarran. I am Clayton Shank, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>